stopped at this time for their intended destinations. Do we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene? Do we still say it's wonderful, it's marvelous what he's done for us? I think it's easy to lose sight of all of that. We get so used to thinking about the great truths of what God has done for us that we lose sight of what that really is. And it uh, can become ho-hum. I hope it uh, doesn't always stay that way for us. Uh, As we continue in our time of worship today, I'd like to uh, pause and let's transition with a word of prayer as we look to get into the study of God's Word. I'd like to ask the author of the book to give us insight into what we're about to study. So let's uh, pray together. Father, we truly do stand amazed at what you have done for us, that your great love for us has been shown to us through Jesus Christ, that indeed you took our sins and our sorrows upon yourself. And I pray that you would indeed help us to forever sing of your love for us. We do look forward to that time then all of us together, home in glory, will be able to remember and rejoice in what you've done. But in the meantime, we ask that you would help us to be faithful to the things that you've called us to here, to get to know you, to walk with you, to allow you to change our lives, to be conformed to the image of Christ, and to reach out to those around us who don't know you. And so as we turn our attention to the teaching of your word this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, you would give us hearts to understand, and that you would give us the will to follow and obey what you would have for us this morning. So we thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray, and it's in his name we offer to you this time of study of your word. Speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'll just remind you, if those of you who like to take notes, there is a note sheet in your uh, bulletin there that you can follow along. Um, I brought some things along with me uh, today. Uh, my apologies to the carpenters and tradesmen and craftsmen among us. Uh, you don't know what I want really do with these things sometimes. So we uh, have a saw and a hammer, and I have a, a screwdriver here. That's a screwdriver, right? Um, These are tools, right? These are tools. These are things that we use uh, for different purposes to build and shape things that we are working on, things that uh, we try to make them the way we want them to be. Uh, And having these kinds of tools are very important. Uh, Today we're going to look at that theme of tools uh, in God's hands. Uh, Just as a reminder, uh, from last week, we looked at Romans 8, 26 to 30, that God was working according to his purpose to conform us to the image of Christ. God's purpose is not to change our circumstances, but to change us. How often are we in the midst of difficult circumstances, and we want the circumstances to change, and we lose sight of the fact that God is not so interested in our circumstances as he is in us. Today, we're going to look at Romans 8, 14 to 18, and we're going to back, actually, to some previous verses. You say, all right, we've already been there. I'd like to go back to some previous verses that we've looked at to focus in on actually one phrase that we sort of passed over when we went through it the first time, because I think it's important for us to understand this. So I'm going to read Romans 8, 
uh, verses 14 to 18. Uh, and that phrase that we're going to look at is contained in there. So I invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't already, in Romans 8. Let's read along uh, together and follow along. I'll be reading and teaching this morning out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That little phrase there in verse 17, provided we suffer with him, just seems to be so out of place. Uh, We have the spirit within us. We've not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and heirs with Christ. This is wonderful news. As I said, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, the breeze is blowing gently. And he says, provided we suffer with him. What? Provided we suffer with him. Uh, what is this talking about? So we have this lofty declaration of our sonship. What a downer to think about. No, so what you're saying is I have to add suffering to my life. Uh, before I know Jesus, everything is fine, and now I ask him to be my savior, and I have to add suffering. Uh, no, if you're really honest with your life, uh, suffering is a part of our daily lives, as Job said, right? This man is... Uh, as the sparks fly upward, man is born for trouble. So this is not saying that we have to add suffering to our life. Suffering is a given. We all suffer in some way. There are pains that we endure uh, in our lives, whether they are minor annoyances to major catastrophes. Suffering is a given. What this is saying is provided we suffer with him. The emphasis is not on the suffering because we all suffer. It's with him. What does it mean to suffer with Jesus, like Jesus, in the same way that Jesus suffered? That's what this is talking about. Provided we suffer with him, like him, in the same way that he did. And what we're going to see today, hence the tools, is that God uses suffering in our lives And he transforms that into a tool that he uses to conform us to the image of his son. God transforms our suffering into a tool that he uses to make us like Jesus. And I said this at a previous lesson that I think we need to bring it out now. We will misunderstand who God is and how he works in our lives if we do not understand how God uses suffering for our good and for his glory. We will misunderstand who God is and how he works in our lives if we do not understand how God uses suffering for our good and for his glory. And this is a very important thing that I think we need to understand. Now, this is vacation season. We've heard a little bit of that already. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've had several kinds of vacations over the years. Sometimes there are vacations where you go to one place and you stay there. Then there are kind of some vacations where you just go to many different places all at once, like in how do you see New England in three days? I still don't know how we did that. Uh, 
Or there are other kinds of vacations where you go to one place, but you use that one place as a, as a base to do little day trips to other places. Well, that's what we're going to do today. We've been camping in Romans 8. We've been staying in Romans 8. That's our home base. But today, we've started in Romans 8, but we're going to take a day trip into uh, the book of Hebrews to look at this idea of what it is that we suffer with him. And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at Jesus' suffering, right? It says, provided we suffer with him. All right, well, what was his suffering? And then we're going to look at our suffering with Jesus. What would it look like if we suffer with him? That is what uh, Paul is talking about here in Romans. So uh, let's dig into Jesus' suffering. And I invite you to turn uh, in the Bible, ahead to the book of Hebrews. Now, we're in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2 Thessalonians, 1st and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. If you reach James and Peter, you've gone too far. So Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're going to start. Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, like our tour through New England in three days, uh, we're not going to be diving deeply into any of these areas, but we're going to be pulling out some highlights, some can't-miss things that are uh, in the book of Hebrews relative to our subject today. So Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not, and this is referring to Jesus, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is talking about Jesus who can sympathize with our weaknesses. But how so? One who has been tempted in every respect as we are. Jesus has been tempted in all things, in every respect, just as we are. Jesus was tempted in every respect, just as we are. And we often think of Jesus' suffering uh, as, well, he died on the cross, and that was his suffering, and, you know, he was beaten and things before the cross. But really, if you look at his life, uh, I'm going to flash through a series of things that Jesus suffered in his earthly life here and see if anything makes sense to you there, if you've ever uh, had any of that on your own. So the first point here is we see that Jesus suffered our suffering. He has been tempted in all things as as we are, uh, and so let's see what his sufferings are. So he was mistreated, he was uh, treated unjustly, he was denied by his friends, he was misunderstood by his family, he really had no place to call home. At one point he was uh, not just feeling separated from God, but actually separated from God. He was directly tempted by the devil. There were times that he was hungry and he was thirsty and he was tired. And he was also weighed down by his concern for others and what was going on in their lives. He was hated by many of his contemporaries. He was placed on trial in an unfair trial. He was beaten. He was abused. He was injured. Uh, at one point or a couple points, he faced life-threatening weather conditions. He experienced and grieved or the death of loved ones. He was lied about. He was falsely accused. And this is a partial list. I have a few more here that I left out, and these are just the ones as I reflected on his life in the Gospels. We could go on and on with others. Does this sound familiar? Can any of us put our hands up and say, well, yeah, that's, those things have happened to me. Jesus suffered our suffering. 
Jesus suffered our suffering. He was tempted in all things as we are, not just the cross, but the day-to-day nitty-gritty of, lie, of our lives, from the minor annoyances to the major catastrophes. Jesus suffered our sufferings. But let's look in uh, verse 15 again here in Hebrews 4, because we need to finish that. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, yet without sin. Jesus suffered our sufferings, but he suffered without sin. That's not something we can say, right? That's not something we can say. So when we experience these sufferings, our responses are often to add to our suffering. They are sinful responses. Paul Tripp calls it, we trouble our troubles. Uh, We make things worse by our sinful responses. Uh, Peter brings this out in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. He says this, Jesus committed no sin. For example, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. See, when we are reviled, when someone speaks badly of us, what do we do? We speak badly of them in return, whether it's within ourselves or to them or to others or to gossip, or we plan revenge or we become bitter or we alienate ourselves from those people because they didn't speak well of us. Or if we suffer under something, we, we threaten, well, I'm going to get even with you or I'm going to quit or you treat me like that, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. We make all kinds of threats. This says that when Jesus suffered, he did not sin in return. He suffered injustice. He suffered abuse. He suffered rejection, but he did not sin in return. Rather, he trusted God to take care of his problems and that he could focus on doing what was right, that he would focus on doing what was right. So Jesus suffered our suffering, and he suffered without sin. But also, let's go now to Hebrews chapter 5, just the next chapter ahead, to learn another part of his suffering. And we'll pick up in verse 7. And this, to me, is a fascinating look into Jesus' life. Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, that is, when he was living here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. To me, that's a remarkable statement. You're talking about God himself, the Son of God on earth, having to learn obedience. Now, when we think of that, we think of moving from disobedience to obedience. Well, that's not what Jesus went from. He was never disobedient. He learned from never having experienced this before to when he faced the suffering, responding obediently. He learned obedience. He acquired obedience by experience. As he was tempted by the devil, he responded in obedience. As he was falsely accused, he responded correctly. He did not respond sinfully. He responded in obedience to who God was. And also, just look at this. How did he do this? It was with loud tears, loud cries and tears, loud cries and tears. Sometimes I think we, we feel as a Christian that if we're suffering, we have to rock up and, you know, big boys don't cry kind of thing, right? Uh, big girls don't cry. But 
Jesus cried, and he offered loud cries and tears in the midst of his suffering. It hurts. There were times he said, God, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So it's okay to feel the pain. It's okay to have the loud cries and tears. But Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. Truly a remarkable statement. So Jesus suffered our suffering. He suffered without sin, unlike us. And he learned obedience through his suffering. So as we begin to think of what it means that we suffer with him, these are the things that we need to keep in mind. So now let's look at our suffering with Jesus. And to do that, I invite you to turn ahead to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to take a brisk stroll through the first 16 verses of Hebrews 12 to get an idea of what it would look like for our suffering with Jesus. So in the first four verses, uh, I'd like to jump into the middle here of verse 1. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Life is an endurance race, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. With our suffering with Jesus, we are to keep our eyes on him. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus. And what did he do in the midst of his suffering? He looked beyond the, the cross. He looked beyond the shame to see the joy that was set before him. He realized that the suffering that he was going through was temporary and that there was a greater joy on the other side of this. So when we keep our eyes on Jesus, we are remembering that he looked beyond to the resurrection. We look beyond to the resurrection. We look beyond to the time when God's going to make all of this new. This suffering that we experience now is temporary. It's momentary. It's not going to last. We can look beyond. Not only that, in verse 3, he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Our suffering for our sins has not reached that level. We're not dying on the cross for our sin. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And Laurel shared, as we were discussing this lesson, the story that when we were bringing up our kids, sometimes there were times she was with the kids and she was at the end of herself. She was suffering with the difficulties and the challenges and starting to get frustrated. She would look at her hands and said, I don't see any nail prints. I don't see any nail holes there. I've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in my striving against sin. We can look to Jesus. We can keep his suffering in mind, what he has done for us as we face our suffering. And what he did for us is he took our suffering upon himself. He died the death that we deserve so that we could live. We could have forgiveness and that we could live. Well, let's look at verses 5 and 6. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. All of those words, discipline and chastising and reprove and rebuking and, and other ways that different translations uh, say that, it's talking about training. That word disciplines mean training up a child, training up a child. So God loves us. He trains us as sons. He trains us as sons. The difficulties that we have in life, the challenges that we face in life, 
God trains us as sons. He uses them to conform us to the image of Christ. In fact, he says in verse 7 and 8, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline or training in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says the fact that we go through this suffering under the hand of God is proof that we are his sons. See, I don't discipline your kids. When we were bringing up our kids, I disciplined my kids. I don't discipline your kids. I disciplined my kids because they were my children. If God is not training you, if God is not disciplining you, if God is not using the suffering in your life to transform you into his image, well, then you're not really his son. If you are his son or his daughter, he is going to be training you. He is going to be disciplining you. He's going to be bringing suffering and difficulty into your life for his, for his purposes. Well, let's continue on then. In verses 9 and 10, we see the purpose of this. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But what? He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. They discipl he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. God's goal is that we share his holiness, which picks up from what Paul said in Romans 8, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. God's goal is to conform us, and he will use suffering as those tools, as the hammer and the saw and the screwdriver and the other things that he needs to mold us into the people that we should be, that he wants us to be. God is not waiting till we get to heaven to make us holy. He is starting that now. God is not waiting till we get to heaven to make us holy. He is starting that now. And suffering is a major tool he uses to train us. As a matter of fact, in verse 11, the, uh, the writer says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, right? <laughs> the sufferings we go through, they're not pleasant, they're painful, they hurt. They're accompanied with loud cries and tears. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. To those who have been trained by it. So we need to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our suffering, focus on him, on his sacrifice on our behalf, how he handled the sufferings that he bore on our behalf. Realize that God trains us as sons that he uses the sufferings as his tools to guide us, that we may share his holiness. I participated in various sports uh, in years past. I won't say how many years. And the coaches were always intent on making us suffer. Well, you did that okay, let's do it again. Well, you did that all right, let's do it again. You did that all right, let's do it again. And if you missed it, they'd make you take a lap around the goalpost so you wouldn't forget it, right? There was suffering. There was intentional suffering inflicted in this training. Why? Because they wanted to make us better. They wanted to enable us to be who we needed to be. And what's interesting is it, it was only for the athletes that that suffering came. If you were the ball boy, if you were the bat boy, if you were the water boy, you didn't have to go through that suffering. You could, get stand, you could stand by and watch all of us do the suffering. You didn't have to participate. The suffering was for those who were in the game the suffering for those who were going to participate. And 
we are in this life of suffering, God uses that suffering, He transforms that suffering into an intentional part of our training. And then just briefly, the writer here goes on to say in verses 12 to 16 that we are to avoid the wrong responses to suffering and God's training that comes with it. We can respond wrongly to the suffering that God brings, and we can respond wrongly to the training that God is trying to bring. So in verses 12 and 13, lift your drooping hands. Don't just walk around in despair and giving up, but pursue healing. He says, put the, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather be healed. Pursue healing in the midst of that suffering. Don't just drag around with your limping foot, but pursue the healing that God is, is offering. Strive for peace with everyone. Suffering damages our relationships with one another because we re- respond wrongly. Pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Sometimes we give up on our relationship with God. In verse 15, he says, no root of bitterness. Don't become bitter. And it springs up and it causes trouble, not just in your life, but he says it spills over into others' lives. It may be, many may become defiled. He says, let no one be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. What he's saying here in the midst of our suffering, what we can do is we can even give up on the idea of living godly lives we can just say, all right, that's the, if that's the way, God, you're going to do in my life, I'm just going to give up. It doesn't matter. I don't care anymore. Or like Esau, he even sold his birthright. For us, what does that mean? That means saying like, living like I don't even know who God is. I'm not a child of God. I'm just going to give up that birthright. Uh, not some time ago, I learned about an, a revenge affair. You know what a revenge affair is? A, a husband is cheating on his wife. The wife finds out that he's been cheating. And so what does she do? She goes to have an affair of her own. I'll show him. It's called a revenge affair. This is a real thing. It happens, sadly. How often have you had a revenge affair with God? Or have I had a revenge? God brings suffering into our lives. We don't like what God is doing. We say, okay, God, that's it. I'm going to just do my thing. I'm going to, it's not worth living for you. I'm just going to go out and do all those things I've been holding off on for all this time. The writer of the Hebrews says, no, don't do that. Don't give up your birthright. Don't Stop pursuing holiness in the midst of the suffering. These are tools in God's hands to conform you to his image, to make you like Jesus Christ. These hard times are suffering. Well, let's go back to Romans 8. We're done with our day trip, and we're going to go back to Romans 8, where we're going to finish uh, with some thoughts of thinking it through here now. Let's think a few things. So back to Romans 8. Verse 17 says, provided we suffer with him provided we suffer with him. We suffer like him. We learn to obey without sin. Suffering is a given. How we respond to the suffering is what makes the difference, right? Suffering is a given in our lives. We, will, we are all suffering in some way, and how we respond to that suffering is what makes the difference. And you say, well, I'm not suffering. I'm not, I didn't lose my job. I, I'm not doing anything bad. Uh, no, suffering can be anything from minor annoyances to major catastrophes. We can suffer because of life circumstances in a broken world. Things happen to us, natural disasters, drunk drivers hit us. There are are things that happen that are totally beyond our control. Sometimes suffering comes as a result of other people's actions towards me, gossip, rejection, uh, 
lies, whatever. So suffering can come from life circumstances as a result of other people's actions, or suffering can be something I bring on myself. I'm caught stealing at work. I make bad choices in life, get involved in unhealthy relationships. We all suffer from these varieties of things, but they're all the same. They're all things that God can use as tools in his hands to draw us to himself, to draw us closer to him. So even if I'm suffering because of something I brought on myself, I can come to God and ask for his forgiveness and trust him with the consequences of those things that through those consequences, he will build godly character and holiness that he's looking to build. C.S. Lewis, in the book, The Problem with Pain, uh, said something there that's very profound. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, when things are going well for us, we can forget that God is there. We can forget that, that God is working in our lives. We can ignore even pleasure. But pain, he says, insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It, it, is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I learned in my training uh, at one point in time early on that pain is a powerful motivator. I should be, as a doctor, this sounds counterintuitive, not to be too quick to relieve pain because that removes the person's motivation to get better. Uh, and I've seen that to be true. If all we do is focus on the pain and getting rid of the pain, that removes the person's motivation for finding out what the cause for that pain is and let's deal with it. Pain is a powerful motivator. And the pain that God brings into our lives is the invitation to turn to him. Now, if you're an unbeliever today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your savior, you don't know that you're a child of God, God's invitation to you today is to become his child by believing in Jesus' death and resurrection for you. He died on the cross for your sins. He was raised from the dead to give you new life. That's what brings purpose in this life. That's what brings security for the life to come. And the suffering that you experience in this life is a reminder that you need a savior. You need eternal life. The suffering you experience in this life is a reminder to you. It's God's megaphone to you shouting that you need a savior. You need eternal life. And if that describes you and you're interested, I'd be happy to talk with you later. People in our prayer team uh, later would be happy to talk to you up here or somebody next to you might be happy to either talk to you or direct you to someone who can talk to you about what it means to come into this relationship with Jesus. But if you're a believer, if you're someone who would say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior, I have committed my life to Him by faith, this is an invitation to expand your view of how your loving Heavenly Father uses the sufferings of your life. Because you are his child, your suffering is changed from the meaningless toil of this world into a meaningful tool in God's hands. He is fashioning you to look like Jesus, regardless of the type of suffering, whether it was brought on by circumstances, by others, or by your own sin and foolishness. God is looking to fashion you into someone that looks like Jesus, and he's going to use our sufferings 
to do that. So this is God's invitation to you to expand your view of how God uses suffering. We, all, we want to change our circumstances. We want to get rid of the suffering, and God often has a higher goal than that. He wants to not change our circumstances, but to change us. And if we just take a quick trip through Romans 8, where we've been, what can we see about this this megaphone, what is God shouting to us through Romans 8? He's shouting in, in verse 3 that Jesus died for your sins so you can be forgiven. In verse 1, without condemnation, there's no condemnation. Verses 9 to 13, the Spirit lives in you. You can live a new life now, and resurrection is coming later. You're going to get a new body. He's going to transform your life now, and someday you're going to get a new body with no pain and no sorrow. Verses 15 to 17, you are God's children and his heirs. Nothing can change that. You are God's adopted child. There's nothing that can change that. What else is God shouting to us through this megaphone? We are to live with an eternal perspective, realizing that the pain of this time is temporary. It is going to go away. There's heaven that is coming. Pain is going to be gone. Glory is coming. Verses 19 to 22, the groanings of creation remind you that this is not all there is and you're not home yet. When your car breaks, when there's a storm, the, the tree falls in your house, these are not things to become bitter over. These are bitter reminders that we're not home yet and God is going to make all things new. And so when these things happen, yes, they need to be dealt with. Yes, there may be tears. Yes, there may be crying. But these are reminders that this is not all there is. This life is not all there is, and there's, we're not home yet. Verses 23 to 25, our suffering reminds us to live with a confident hope in God's help and for his return for us. Our suffering reminds us to live with a confident hope in God's help as the Spirit works within us and for his return for us. He's promised to come back for us someday. And then in verses 26 to 30, which we looked at last week, God has done, is doing, and will completely do all that is necessary to conform us to the image of Christ and to take us home with Him. God has done, is doing, and will completely do all that is necessary to conform us to the image of Christ. The pain and the sufferings of this life are God's megaphone to speak to us of His love and His grace and His mercy as He seeks to conform us to the image of Christ. He transforms our suffering from these meaningless toils into meaningful tools that he will use to change us, to conform us to his image. So provided we suffer with him, there's God's toolbox of suffering. God is committed to making us like Jesus and uses our suffering as a tool to reach that goal. God is committed to making us like Jesus. It's going to happen. He's going to completely finish it. And he uses our suffering as a tool to reach that goal. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, we have taken this trip from Romans 8 into Hebrews and back again to Romans 8. And I pray that there would be something here for each of us to grab a hold of. As we realize that Jesus suffered our suffering, he suffered without sin and he learned obedience through that suffering. That we are to keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of our suffering, that you train us as your sons and that your goal is that you would conform us to your holiness, to your character.
And Father, we realize that we cannot do this ourselves, that we need you, that we need you to be the light in the darkness. We need you to be the peace in our souls when things are falling apart around us. We need you to rescue us when we are caught up in our own sins and our own foolishness or even caught up in the things of this world. And Lord, we acknowledge that all our hope is in you and we ask that you would help us to rest in you to find our peace and comfort and rest in the midst of the storms, knowing that you are there, you will never leave us or forsake us, and you will not stop until your work is done of conforming us to the image of your Son. And so I pray that for each of us here, believers, unbelievers, immature, mature, growing, not growing, whoever we are, wherever we are, that you would stir in our hearts by the power of your Spirit to draw us closer to you, to love you more for what you have done for us. And may we see our sufferings and the trials of this life differently because of what we've seen from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.